I always said that I raised my children that way, and I raised my schoolhouse children that way. Children don't always like to be told no, 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 no all the time. It gets kind of like old, and also it's like, well, what worth do I have if I'm always going to be told no? So to give them the opportunity to explore and to experiment, and then if they fall on their face, well, that's another whole scenario of picking them back up and then wiping them off and helping them decide what they're going to do next, how they're going to handle that situation. That's Debbie Phelps, Michael Phelps' mom. Michael doesn't really need a lot of introduction. With 28 medals, he's the most decorated Olympian of all time, and he's for sure one of the greatest athletes of our generation. What a lot of people don't know is that Michael's sisters, Whitney and Hillary, were also competitive level swimmers. I met Debbie after reading her book, A Mother of All Seasons, which I think is a must read for every young parent. Energetic and a captivating storyteller, Debbie talks very openly about the joys and also about the challenges of raising three athletes as a single mom while also building her very successful career. I hope you'll enjoy Debbie's golden nuggets of information as much as I did. I'm Guy Michelin, and this is Raising to Rise, a show about the parents, educators, and mentors of kids who made it to the top of their game. Every week, we'll identify patterns and pieces of advice that hopefully will serve you while on the journey of raising your own kids. Debbie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. To kick things off, I want to take you back to the summer of 2004. Athens. At, actually, Baltimore. So I think oh, at that what? time, you were already a teacher for like 30 years or something like that. I think that your dream from day one was to be leading your own school. And then one day, the superintendent of Baltimore calls you to his room and he tells you, And I'm paraphrasing, but he tells you basically, Debbie, you're a rock star. We want to appoint you and to become a principal of your own school. Do you remember this conversation? Oh, absolutely. I remember it very vividly. So I was working at the district office, uh, assistant to the executive director, and my boss told me that I was going to be called to Dr. Joe Harrison's office. My name was going to go forward to become principal at Woodlawn Middle School. Woodlawn Middle School had just been taken over by the state because of their performance, and I was going to be the principal who was going to turn it around. So I said to Dr. Melbourne, my boss, I said, sir, I can't do that. He's like, what do you mean you can't do that? I said, this summer is Michael's summer. I need to be in Athens. And he said, well, you better think about this answer before you go talk to the superintendent. And I said, all right, but my answer is not going to change, sir. So I got called to Dr. Harrison's office, and I was all set, and I'm sitting across the table from him. And he, it was just a, a very loving, humble superintendent who took great pride in picking his principals for his schools. And he said, Deborah, it's time for you to become a principal of a school. I said, well, thank you, sir. He said, so I'm going to put your name forward to the Board of Education to be the principal at Woodlawn Middle School. I said, I'm deeply honored, but I can't take the job. And I remember looking across the table to, at him, and his eyes were so large, and the look on his face was very puzzled. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, Dr. Harrison, this summer belongs to my son. And I said, I need to be in Athens. And he's like, well, you can go to Athens. I said, no. I said, I believe in doing things 100%. 
I said, if I'm in, in Athens, I will give my son 100%, but I will not give my school 100%. I said, this is a school that needs a leader to be able to be there in the summer, to be able to go to the churches, to go to the communities, to be able to meet with parents, let them know who I am and what I'm going to do to help impact their child. It would not be fair to the children in that school. And he looked at me and he says, well, my children played football. And I said, I applaud him for doing that, but this is the international stage. So I need to be in Athens, sir. And I hope you understand that. Well, he dismissed me from his office. He said, go to Athens, Deborah, and I'll see you when you get back. And I said, okay, sir, thank you for the opportunity. And I walked out the door thinking, oh my God, what did I just do to myself? I just told the superintendent of schools I wasn't going to take a job he was giving me. Do I have a job when I come back? So I kind of tucked that in my head and kind of went on to Athens with my son and came back. And I found out I did have a job. He was going to appoint me to a brand new school in the same location two years later. Well, that's a great story. And I think it really captures the fact that it seems that family comes first for you. And it's very apparent throughout your life journey. And we're going to come back to it, I think, many, many times in this conversation. But before that, I actually want to go back even more in time to when you were a child. It seems like your parents were very influential into shaping who you are and also in shaping how later on you became as a parent. And one thing that caught my eye when I read about your childhood, it seemed like that it's been a very happy childhood. So I, I, I actually marked a sentence in the book that you say, I loved life with an exclamation mark. And the reason it caught my eye so much is that I grew up the opposite. So actually after my parents divorced, my my childhood was, was miserable. I was very lonely and sad. And it's something that is very important for me that my kids would experience their childhood like you did and not like I did. And so I wonder, is there anything that your parents did that I can or other parents can take away and instill in our kids or create their type of environment that enable you to have such happy and vivid childhood? Or is that you were just born like that? There was the togetherness. You know, from the schoolhouse, which I still reflect back on, I can tell you my first grade, my third grade, my fifth grade teacher, I remember walking to school and, and the community school was a place of love and warmth and learning. And it just kind of carried over from my home to my schoolhouse to the church in which I went to on Sunday. It's what my, our mom and dad made it for us. And so always opportunities, but I didn't realize how poor we were. I really did not because they never let that come up in the conversation in our home we were always able to work together to make things happen. Got it, okay. And you refer to your mom as my number one teacher. What other things did you learn from your mom and what did you take from her to your parenting later on? Apologies. <laughs> I said this at her eulogy when she left this earth to go into the sky to become an angel up there, she taught me how to be a woman and to be a lady, to listen, to care, to be compassionate, to be able to respect people. And I carried that to my, my own children through my parenting styles. She was always there for me. And she always, again, she listened, and then she would give me what we call now in our family little golden nuggets of information, which I didn't realize how golden they were until I became a parent. And they truly were golden nuggets of just thoughts as to what you should do next. Can you give an example? Well, always to, to listen to a child and to be able to let them express their point of view or their thought process. But then to be able to say, 
but have you thought about this? Or would you consider that? So giving me the opportunity to be able to become a thinker and then also to become a decision maker, but it was to working collaboratively. That open dialogue is so important between parents and children because your child is going through so many stages of his or her life that they're up and down and all around. And they really don't know everything, even though they think they do. But mom would listen, and she would say, good point, but how about considering this? So it seems like she always kind of was able to bend my decision to be the right decision. That's fascinating because Michael said the same thing about you in his book, <laughs> that mom never told me no, but she always say, did you consider this? So I guess you continue with, with her tradition or I with did. her legacy. So I think that's a great transition now to talk about you becoming a parent. So you graduate from uh, college and you marry your high school sweetheart, Fred. And very quickly, you decide to start a family. I got finished my student teaching one week and we got married the next week. And Fred took a semester off to earn money so we could get married. So he was still in school. I was 21. And then when he graduated, we decided to move back home. So we went back to Western Maryland to where, where we grew up. 25 is when I had Hillary. I was going to back to school that summer. I was going to the University of Maryland to work on my master's and found out I had become pregnant. So I put that on the back burner because I couldn't travel to the University of Maryland every day to do my master work. So then Hillary was brought into this world. Very happy. And then two years later, it was Whitney. And then five years after that, it was Michael. But between that, there was a separation and then it was also a divorce. So a lot was going on. A lot going on. I wonder in those early years when you just became a parent, did you have any conscious or unconscious principles as to how you're going to raise the kids? My thought process, it was a collaborative effort, one, but we definitely came from two different home environments. Again, my, my home environment being very open, collaborative, conversational, and that wasn't the same in Fred's home. Even though there was some, it was just his mom had a different way of discipline, him and he and his brother, than my parents did. Did you ever talk about it? Did you have a conversation with him? I believe that these should be the guiding principles. And he said, no, I think these should be the guiding principle. Was it ever a conversation? Or it was more each one brought what he brought from home, and that's how you raise the kids. I think each one brought what they brought from their home environment, but also remember that he was a state trooper, so meaning he was on swing shifts. So I was the stable nine-to-five job, per se, home at night for dinner and things of that nature where he was not. So the flexibility in his schedule was not there, really. It was pretty regimented. So I seemed to be the one who was always the mainstay of getting the kids up in the morning, getting them off to school, getting dinner at night, things of that nature, and really to listen to them, help with homework, and to be able to direct them as to what they should or should not be doing. Even though he was a great father and did a lot of caring for them when he was on certain shifts, being able to stay with them when they were littler. But I wouldn't say, here's my list, here's your list, let's bring them together. It was more when things would occur, how we would handle it. And can you give me an example where those two different perspectives came into play? 
Let's use the example of Michael getting up for morning practice. Michael didn't not like morning practice. <laughs> <laughs> and swimming is like 5 a.m. or something. I know. It's just, it was too early. <laughs> and to me, it was like my routine of getting Michael up for morning practice was not Fred's routine of getting Michael up for morning practice. It was like, I'm telling you get up, you get up. And that's it, cut and dry. Where I remember a morning when you know I would go into Michael's room and kind of turn on a soft light and say, hey, Michael, it's 4.30. We need to get for practice. And he put the covers over his head. And I would go downstairs in the kitchen and say, oh, please, God, get up. Just get up. Just get up. Where Fred could have been more, let's get up now, you know, type thing. So I remember going to the foot of, this, of the stairs and saying, Michael, it's quarter of five. You have to be in the, down at the pool by five o'clock. If you're not going, pick up the phone and call Coach Bowman. And that did that. And that did that. He was not going to call Coach Bowman. He got up out of bed. I said, I'll be in the car waiting for you with breakfast. And he would come out to the car and get in the car and go. Well, that would have been a very different scenario with Fred. It's like, you say it, you do it. No, sometimes you have to use kind of kid gloves to be able to make everything happen. But I put it back on him for accountability. If you're not going to go, then you're telling the coach then, not, not at practice this afternoon, then that you will not be in that pool at 5 o'clock. It it's worked. differently different perspective. <laughs> It is right, right. Okay, is, was there anything uh, that you think was unconventional in the way you raised the kids? You know, also I, I remember reading stories about people who uproot their lives and move to a different city or a different location for their children's success. We did that. It was just a neighboring county, but from one county to the next, we, we did. We, we uprooted everyone and we moved them, changing school districts and things of that nature, changing jobs. That's not really conventional for most people, but it does occur. But I think that afterwards it was, and you probably have this in a lot of homes today, it was the team concept. Fred and I did divorce. I had three children in the same sport going to three different practices, to two different pools every day. And it was a juggling act, trying to get everybody there when I was coming out of the schoolhouse and things like that. So it was depending on people. I'm going to go back to where I grew up. It was the community. The community that wrapped their arms around each other to be able to support their children to do what they love. And that, that, that was the swimming community at North Baltimore Aquatic Club. It's just very interesting how you kind of come from where you grew up and how you were raised to into this area where you have that same trust and people will do things for you and they'll take care of your children or pick them up or drop them off or have them stay overnight at their house. So it's things like that. When I read the story about uh, Hillary wanting to switch clubs, mm -hmm. I was trying to put myself in your shoes because when my kids, I used, before I read your book, when my kids uh, chose activities, I, I tried also to optimize for my commute. And then I realized that Hillary, the club that she wanted to go to was an hour drive. So you basically knew that by signing up for this club, you're signing up for extra two hours of commute every day, which is a huge, huge commitment, especially if you're a single mom and you're working a full day job. How did you, like when she came and she told me that it was an easy yes or, or you had any thoughts with yourself, wow, this is crazy. I'm adding now two hours a day drive. This is not sustainable. How, how did you think about this? Well, I remember when she did swim at a U.S. club in the county in which we lived at the time, 
but they were pretty much a distance club mission vision. And all they did was work on endurance, not starts, not, not stroke, not things like that. Now, I remember being at a meet and all the MBAC girls beat her. She was like fifth or something, and a 53 or something. And there was a summer meet and she's like, I don't like being fifth. <laughs> I'm like, okay, but everyone can't get a trophy, you know, type thing. She's like, but I want to be fast like MBAC girls. And I'm like, all right. I said, you know what that means? I said, they're in Baltimore. We're in Bel Air. That's an hour away, both ways. And she's like, well, can we check it out? And I'm like, absolutely. So again, going into doing some research, talking to some people, tell me about this club, going online, reading about them. Number one age group club in the country. You want your kid to be at the best. So I remember I said, well, let me schedule a meeting with the coach. So I remember going up to the coach and introduced myself. And he goes, I know who you are. You have two daughters. I said, yes, I do. And they want to swim with you. Like, oh, we want them to swim with us. And we don't want just the older one. We want the younger one also. So how important did I feel that there was a coach from North Baltimore that was already had my daughters, I'm going to say earmarked, for potential athletes? So we went back home. We talked about it. and became a no-brainer. We decided how we were going to make it work. Love it. So you didn't second guess it yourself? Didn't second guess it. And remember then, well, at that time, Hillary was taking ballet, Whitney was doing gymnastics. I'm like, okay, girls, we have to kind of mold this in. And then as soon as Whitney saw that pool, the 50 meter pool, she's like, I'm not swimming here. That pool is too long. I'm like, oh no, if one's coming, two are coming. We're both going to be here and Michael will be in tow. So he would go with his little sleeper on in the back of the car as the girls were in practice. So yeah, it was an interesting feat. <laughs> I can imagine. But it was fun. No, I'm sure it was. <laughs> One of the things that it's interesting, you mentioned the other activities that they had because they had brownie troops and gymnastics and ballet. One of the things I'm always curious about is, was it their choice? Like there's a lot of extracurricular activities. You pushed that to them. Was it important for you? I feel that parents need to allow their children to explore and to experience and then to select. So explore, experience, select. I think a lot of that came from girls that they were friends with in school, in church, what they were getting involved in. And so I thought it was very important to have well-rounded children. They also played the flute. I think Michael played the trombone for a while. So I think it's always important as a parent to allow your children to explore opportunities. But if you're going to explore, you're going to commit to the end of that realm. So they weren't going to quit halfway through on brownies. They were going to finish brownies for a year. So it was something that they wanted to do, and I supported. And how do you teach them that you don't quit? There's actually a story, which I also found hilarious, and even interesting where Michael says, and, and I quote, you would think that on the first day I hit the water, I just sort of turned like a, to be a dolphin, but no way, I hated it. We're talking screaming, kicking, feet throwing, goggle tossing, I hate it. But then the coach, I guess, told him, no luck, that's your problem, Michael. Your mom wants you to learn how to swim, so you're going to swim. Where's the balance between letting the kids develop their own autonomy, I don't want to swim, versus no, you committed, or we're committed now to this new club, so you're going to invest, and you're going to persevere, and you're going to see it through. So how did you play this fine balance between both? 
So please remember that when Fred and myself, when the children were younger, put the children in swimming, our end result was not going to be an Olympian. Our children went into the pool to swim, to learn how to swim for water safety and to prevent drowning, which is Michael's mission vision of his foundation work now. So that was the importance. So when he decided he w needed to learn technique, I wanted him to know the stroke. You know the sport, you got to know how to do it. So he went into stroke clinic on Sundays, and he did not like that. And it was very interesting. He hated getting his face wet. And it was because of, I'll go back to community, Kathy Lears, who is now his program director of his Michael Phelps Swim School. When Michael said, I don't want to get in this pool, Miss Kathy. I don't want to get my face wet. Kathy's like, well, you're not getting out, Michael Phelps. <laughs> so she turned him on his back and taught him backstroke. So then he was okay. But again, I'm going back to, back to collaboration. I'm going back to resolving the issue. Okay, you don't want one on your face? I have another solution for it. I'm going to put you on your back. So there's alternatives that are so important. Okay. One last question on this before we turn the page, and we sort of alluded to that. In the book, Michael said you never told him no. Instead, you made him aware of the consequences of his decisions. And I guess that goes back to what you said about your mom. So th that was sort of a way that you brought up all the kids. Like, we don't say, we, we hardly say no. I think there were one or twice that actually there, was, there is a fam funny story about you going to the cinema, I think. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But other than this, <laughs> it seemed like you didn't tell them I didn't. no. Right? I, I didn't. And maybe that was good. Maybe that was bad. But I think it worked. And I feel that I see some of the same parenting techniques in my children today with their children. So I guess I'm going to give it a stamp of approval. In reference to not saying no, when Michael transitioned from middle school to high school, I'll use that story first, which is a hard transition for kids going from middle school to high school. And all of his buddies were all playing high school sports. So they were all getting their high school physicals. Michael's like, I want to play high school sport. I said, oh, okay. What do you want to do? He said, I don't know, Mom. He said, but I want to be part of the school environment. And I said, okay. I said, Let, let's sit down and let's, let's make a list. Because his friend, who was a freshman, got second string quarterback for varsity. I said, let's, let's see how far this young man can go in his next four years of school and beyond. So I listed down. I said, okay, so let's say where you are, what could you do in the next four years? And what could your end result be? He's like, of course, his list was longer. And I said, hmm, so what do you think your decision might be? Should you play high school sports or should you just stay with the sport that with Coach Bowman in that? He's like, well, maybe I'll play golf. <laughs> And I chuckle about this story because he knows how difficult golf is. He said, Mom, it's only a little ball and a stick. And I think I could squeeze that in between swim practices. And I could be on the golf team. And I said, let's go back to this list, Michael, that you just made. Let's make up a decision. Is it golf or is it swimming? Of course, he stuck with swimming. And the rest is history, which is good. And now he plays golf. And he tries to be so good at golf. And he knows how difficult it is. I said, please don't ever tell your golf team at Towson High School that you could play golf like a drop of a hat. So, no, I didn't say no very often. And that theater story is pretty funny. So can you tell the story? So Hillary wanted to go to a midnight movie with all of her friends. They were all swimmers. And I said, are you sure you want to go to the movie at that time of night? She's like, yes, I do. I said, how about practice the next day? And she's like, it will be okay. 
I said, okay. I said, well, why don't you make the decision that you think is going to be the right decision for you? He says, okay, I'm going to the movies. I was like, <laughs> so I let her walk out the door and just really made me upset. I'm thinking, hmm, you just went, you can't do that, girl. <laughs> so I drove to the theater. I went up to the ticket place. I said, I'll be a moment. I just want to go see my daughter. I'll be right back. And I went in, I tapped on the shoulder. I said, Hillary, you're going home. <laughs> she was so shocked that I did that. But it was like, she was one that really kind of bent earlier in, in her growing up than the other two did. The other two kind of stayed straight and narrow to a degree, but she was like, I'm going to push me over the edge. So it was rather funny, but we still remember it and we laugh about it today. So I can't believe you did that, Mom. I'm like, yeah, I did. I did. I did. I can't either. I should have let it go, but I didn't. <laughs> it's one of those Friday nights. I love it. Just couldn't let it go. <laughs> Great story. So let's talk about Tim Phelps. When I saw you keep referring to it, I just love the, the, the term, Tim Phelps. Where did it come from? Why do you refer to your family? It's just not the family. I guess it's the extended family. Oh. Why do you call it Tim Phelps? When we go back to Michael in 2000 at age 15, being on the Olympic stage in Sydney, it was so remarkable. I go back, I look at the pictures of him. He was so tall and lean and lanky. He had just gotten his braces off his teeth. And I remember him coming out for that 200 fly race and him going over to Mao Chow and wishing him luck. I'm thinking, what are you doing, Michael? This is your race. But coming back home, I'm, I'm like, Bob's like, okay, what's next, Michael? What, what are we going to do next? He said, world record, next Olympics. You know, I'm thinking, oh, my God. And Bob's like, well, then we need, we need an agent. So we saw several agents during the Winter Games on the Today Show. Bob's like, we're going to call in some agents and have some interviews. Michael interviewed them. That's when he met Peter Carlisle. And he met Peter. And Peter was in charge of the snowboarders, Olympic snowboarders. And he came into Baltimore. And he said to Michael, what do you want to do, Michael? What is your mission, vision, your goal as to being the next Olympic Games, whatever? He said, I want to change the sport of swimming. And with that story, Michael also dropped a plate of food between he and Peter on the floor, and they still laugh about that today. He became part of our team, part of our family. We have been together nearly two decades as a team. No one has crossed over in their jobs. Peter is the manager, or excuse me, the agent. We talk about Michael's branding. We give our two cents. Bob is the coach. We talk about Michael's stroke and his program. I don't cross over in question. I'm the parent. I take care of Michael as a parent. So we respect each other's position, others' expertise, but we also are able to be collaborative and talk back and forth about what's going to be best for Michael. And of course, now Michael, as he got older, became a very integral part of that conversation. But Team Phelps, we've gone through the death of our parents together, bringing babies into the world, marriages. That's a long time for an athlete, but we have great love and respect for each other. And we are a family. We are Team Phelps. I guess it became obvious that we were all going to kind of form together. But remember that I have three children who, who love the sport of swimming. I always hang them over to a club to be able to go compete and not always being there. So you became family. I'm going to go back to that word community, how I was raised in that small town. We just created this community of support. And if there was an issue, we brought it up. There was a question we asked, and we got an answer, and it wasn't beating around the bush. 
mean, there were some hard times. Don't think raising them was easy because it wasn't easy because of all the notoriety and things like that that Michael got. But when someone says to me, you're Michael's mother, and I'll say, yes, and Hillary and Whitney's, I have three children. That's very important to me. One funny quote that I read about Bob is that he said, well, it may be true that anybody could have coached Michael, but not anybody could coach Debbie Phelps. What did he mean by that? You know, Bob is a very integral part of Boomer Beckett and Maverick's life. He lives like, I don't know, a couple of miles from Nicole and, and Michael and always over there. He will always be part of our family. Again, I'm going to do, talk about advocacy for your child. If you don't like what a school is doing, you go and you ask the question. You meet with the teacher. You resolve and get and bring to consensus as to what's going to be best for your child. If I had a question about Michael, I went and asked Bob. I would never step on his toes, but I wanted to be informed. So he knew he had to put up with me too. We were a package. Okay. <laughs> okay. But he knew also that there was times that he needed me to be there. You know, he needed me to be there to reinforce Michael when he was teaching Michael a six-beat kick and he would kick Michael out of practice and I would come pick him up at five o'clock when practice was over. How was practice? Michael was like, great, great. It wasn't that great. You were kicked out, Michael. So it was, I had to have this conversation with him too as well. No, it was not great. Coach wants you to do this. So what are you going to do? Here's your goal. Here's what you're doing. How are you going to get better? How are you going to persevere? How are you going to be successful? So... Bob needed me like I needed Bob too. Okay. So he, he, he knew. We, always, we have a great time together, but I knew where my line in the sand was. I shared with you before the conversation a scorecard that I created for myself. So I, when the kids are older, I can go back and say, did I do a good job as a, as a father? And I actually have things that I think it's my job to try and instill in the kids, like uh, perseverance, optimism, happiness, self-confidence. And when I, I look at your kids, there are a couple of, of those traits that are very obvious, like grit and perseverance and love of sport. And so I wonder if you have any advice for me or other parents that uh, would like to help their kids develop these type of traits as to things that we can do to help the kids with that. I'm going to go back to allowing children to explore and to experience, but then to also point out as a parent what that experience, what that's taught you. I remember being at George Mason University with Michael and he wanted to break the American record in 100 free. It was Matt Biondi's record. And he swam the race. He didn't break the record. He got out of the pool. He didn't go to Bob. He went off the pool deck and he went into the locker room. Later, I find him coming up next to me and sitting down. He was very upset. And I said, well, that was decent. He said, no, it wasn't. It was awful. I didn't break the American record. I said, well, you will do that. You just need to persevere. You know, you need to go back and you need to look at that race and you need to tweak some of the of your, your stroke mechanics or your kicking or whatever your turn was. You know, he knew exactly when he had to turn to break a world record. I said, so you go back and work on that and the next time you swim that race, you're going to break it because of your perseverance. So it's reflecting back. Yes, and it's not writing it down. It's that open conversation yeah. to be able to let, let him see that. Almost like a being a mirror. This is what I just saw. This is what you can do. You know how to make it all work. So bringing that to his attention. 
And when he was 10, we were at UMBC swimming 50 breasts, and he looked at the guy next to him who touched before he did. He ripped his goggles off and threw it on the pool deck and got out of the pool. And on our way home in that minivan, he said, I didn't win that race. I was like, no, you didn't. I said, let's talk about, first of all, your sportsmanship. Is that the way we run our home that way? I said, I was sitting in the stands with hundreds of people who saw you just be immature. So how are we going to change that? And so he says, well, I guess I could shake the person's hand next to me when I'm like, yeah, you can, because there will be another race. There will be another opportunity. So that's when Michael started shaking hands after the end of his races that he carried on through his entire career. But that learning that in that moment, that showing your anger is not something you, you need to do publicly. I said, go under the water if you're upset or something, but don't slam the bull deck and throw your cap. Right. There's teachable moments. It may not be just one time you can do that. It may have to be reoccurring to get into their head. I guess, but that's also why it's so important for us as parents to be present because, again, I'm, I'm just reflecting on my childhood. I used to play basketball, but my parents were never there. So there was nobody to play the role that you're just describing as this mirror or as this voice of logic that, to ask you questions. So that just reinforces for me that it's Always so there. important to Always be there. Always there. Always. Be in the moment. Because you may not have that moment again. Right. And then make those moments teachable. Right. I go back to it being kind of common sense, but it's not always common sense. I think being educate, in, in education all these years and being with hundreds of thousands of children coming from different walks of lives, it keeps my eyes open continuously to the needs of our children, our next generation, whether it be my own personal children, my grandchildren, or whether it be friends of somebody else. So let's talk about it for a second, because one of the things that I'm seeing, oh, I started this show to identify themes of how parents of successful kids raise their kids. And one of the things that I'm seeing already is that a lot of the guests on the show are teachers. So Esther was early on, she was a very successful teacher. Mm -hmm. Deirdre, who raised Alex uh, from the movie Free Solo, she's a teacher. A lot of them are teachers. And uh, it's kind of obvious now that I see it, but I never thought about it this way, that a parent is a teacher. And so I'm curious if you have any thoughts of how the teaching career blends with parenting and also what can parents that have not gone through, I did not study to be a teacher like you did, what can I learn from what you learned in school for being of how to be a good teacher that I can take into my parenting world? I, I read their stories and I think we're all in about the same era of our lives, the three of us. And I read in one her talking, when I went to high school, people, women, usually went into teaching, nursing, or being secretary. Um, I, I was told my, by my school counselor I wasn't college material. I'll never forget that. And I, I, was, I was like, I'm going to prove you wrong. I will be in college. I will graduate from college. I will get my master's. The only thing I didn't get was my doctorate, but I will prove you wrong, lady. But anyway, I think we're on the same era. So I don't know. It was education. It's service. The era in which I grew up, our career's focus was that of service serving children, serving people in hospitals, serving executives. I just think it's the service attribute taking it to our parenting. I think that comes from within. 
I think that's come within your heart as to how you work with people. So I don't think there's any little nuggets that I can say, well, my four years of education and my, my degree in, you know, Bachelor of Arts in Education has taught me how to be this as a parent. No, I don't think there's a correlation there necessarily. But I can say that being in a schoolhouse and having children around you all the time is something that you take into parenting. I always say when a teacher is a parent, she conducts her class differently than when she is not a parent or he is not a parent. It's just when you see children, I walk into my schoolhouse, I see my children as my children. For six and a half hours a day, I have 650 children that I'm responsible for. And I'm going to listen to them the same way I listen to my children at home. I'm going to respect them the same way I respect my children at home. I'm going to make sure that they're responsible when they do what they're supposed to be doing. So I instill the, those values into them. So one follow-up on questions on this. I read uh, that you said somewhere, I learned from my students is that with structure, encouragement, attention, and care, children will thrive and push themselves. Can you elaborate on this? Kids need structure. I mean, there has to be structure in the classroom. I can go back to my teaching days. When I was, I wrote a food science and biotech curriculum where we use food as a, as a vehicle to teach science. And I would lay the foundation expectation for the classroom. And then I would let the children be able to complete the assignment. They had structure to begin with. They knew what the expectation of the assignment was. And then they were able to go and they would be able to fulfill it and be successful. That's what you want. With Michael and his ADHD, there's many statements out there about him being medicated only five days a week. On the weekend, I could put structure into his life. He knew exactly what he was accountable for. But in the schoolhouse, when he was back to school on Monday, I can't expect those teachers to have that same structure all the time. So that's something that I feel is definitely needed in a child's life. There has to be structure and organization in order for them to be successful. So that's a good transition to talk about Whitney and, and what you, I think you call in your book Teachable Moments. Mm -hmm. You talk very openly about the period where Whitney had uh, eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I imagine this was a very, very, very hard period. And I also, there was something that, that again, I was thinking about myself that worried me that the fact that as parents, we can go by months, or I don't know if it was happening a year without actually knowing what's going on with our kids. Because it sounded like for a while she was able to kind of like hide it from you. Mm -hmm. So how do you, first of all, if you can describe what did you go through that very hard time? What did you learn from that? And also what are the lessons that other parents can take how to be with the pulse or to be able to identify it when it happens? Because otherwise it can basically spiral off, spiral to, to very terrible places. So that was leading up to the 96 games in Atlanta. And there were five athletes, five athletes that had Olympic trial cuts that any of them could have made the Olympic team from North Baltimore Aquatic Club. And she worked hard. She was, she's such a hard worker, so determined. And when you, you know, kids are in sweats. So I did not notice anything different about her body. She was eating. I didn't monitor necessarily what she was eating, but I did not see any weight loss or anything of that nature. And so I thought, you know, she's going to practice, she's working hard, she's leading up to the 96 trials. And I get this call from another coach from the club, the head of the club at the time. And he's like, what's happened to Whitney? I'm like, what do you mean what happened to Whitney? He said, have you seen her lately? I said, I see her every day. 
She's like, no, in a bathing suit. And I'm like, you see her every day in a bathing suit. I don't see her in a bathing suit. And he says, well, she, something's wrong. She's too much, lost too much weight. And so that's when we had to have a conversation. We went to the doctors, went to a nutritionist, went to a dietitian, tried to get her back on. She thought that if she ate less and she weighed less, that she would go faster in the water. Misconception big time. So she stopped eating as anything of substance and nutrition, not cereal, things like that. And so after going to getting help, talked about going to a sports psychologist to get her back in track. That's the mental toughness that we talked about earlier, uh, to get her back her head where she needed to be and the, the importance of nurturing your body with the right food. We monitored everything on the back of my door in a chart. She had to come in every night and tell me what she ate, but she was masking that too as well. And we've talked to this day how she's like, I wasn't eating all that, mom. I was just kind of trying to make you happy. But so she went to 96 trials, and of course she didn't make the team in the same natatorium that Michael came in four years later and made the team in the same event. It was very difficult for her. Then on top of that, we came out of those trials. She said, my back is killing me, mom. She had a stress fracture in her lower back and a herniated disc. Reflecting back on that, any takeaways that other parents can learn from this period? I, th I think we were so caught up in working towards Olympic trials you know, me being the support to get her to and from and things of that nature, that we got lost in the moment. That we weren't looking, I wasn't looking at the whole child and nor was the coach. So there's something that he, because that just didn't happen overnight. That was something that was elongated over several months and he should have cut that way before. Okay. So a difficult time, difficult for Michael because she was first in the country, third in the world and should have made the Olympic team. But when you don't prepare yourself the way you need to as a total athlete, it's not going to happen. Life lessons. Yeah, for sure. One question I want to ask you for sure is how do you define success as a parent? You know, those 18 years go by so fast when you have children. I think sometimes we don't capture every moment. Well, we can't capture every moment. You try to capture every moment you possibly can and to kind of really really reflect on what just happened or the success of it. You know, we always say with Michael's five games, we never celebrated one because we were heading towards the next one. So it's now that we go back and we talk of stories of, of that. But when you talk about success is, you know, did you do the best for your child? Did you, you know, give them the old analogy of giving them the, the, the strong roots to be able to be productive citizens in society, to be happy, to be able to go out and to make a difference, to give service, to be able to love your job and love what you do every day and embrace your family if you have one and, and to be able to teach them lessons that you learned and then to be able to watch them flourish. I mean, I look at my three children and the success of, you know, Hillary has one son, married with one son. Whitney has two children. Remarrying will have five in the family, so blending a family together. And then Michael ha and Nicole have three boys. But it's just watching them parent, watching them take care of that that next generation of kids as to what they, they will become. Because we don't know what our world's going to be like in 10, 20 years from now. So the big thing is you want them to be happy with who they are. Any other advice as like for parents, I'm pretty at the beginning of the journey. Any other advice mm -hmm. that you would give parents like me or things that you would have done differently? Something I, I think I might've done differently was 
I thought I was the only sounding board that my kids needed. And I think going up through the separation and divorce, I felt they were handling it well or accepting it to the best that they could. Uh, I probably would have gotten some more professional help. I think that's important. You know, when I listen to Michael talk now with his work with mental health, our children have to be able to express themselves. And there are so many things that they are faced with today that when I look back in that little town that I grew up in in Western Maryland, I wasn't confronted with issues like kids are today. You know, the traumatization of, of the amount of school shootings that we're having now and just people not treating people well and being bullies and the social media platform that we have today. It's so hard on our kids. You know, I, I look at my grandchildren. I, I want to kind of dive into their brain to see if they're okay. So I tend to ask all these questions uh, as an educator, as a, a, a former mother, as their grandmother to make sure they're okay and then they can talk with me. I think that's something that's so important. And I think it's often forgotten in some cases. And having that one-on-one -on -one time is so important. And to be able to let them, which I feel I, with my children, as I discussed through our conversation, to let them see the pros and cons, let them make that list, let them make the decision, you know, help them through the problem solving. So again, when they do fall on their face, and my children did fall on their face, one nationally, and that was difficult, but using that someone's mistake to be able to support someone else. When Michael went through his debacles, I was a principal of school. I was disciplining children, especially my young men who would rather deck someone than talk. But we finally came over that hurdle. But you know, them coming in saying, oh, Miss Phelps, let's talk about what just happened. So using that opportunity to say, yeah, it was wrong, but let's look at the flip side of that coin. How did you come out of it? What did you do because of it? What did you learn from it? Will you do it again? All those questions. Again, I'm going to go back to conversation, which is so important. That some people hide behind their phones and don't have those open dialogues. That's my advice to parents. I love it. Debbie, thank you very, very, very much. It was my pleasure. great. I really, really enjoyed it. And there was so many golden nuggets there. So thank you. So many takeaways in one conversation. Reflecting back, I wrote down six bullet points. The first, it takes a village to raise a kid. Raising kids can be challenging at times, so build a support network. Friends, family, neighbors, coaches, have them around to step in when needed. Number two, it's a dialogue. Listen, be present, and try not to use no. Instead, use phrases like, have you considered this? Have you considered that? Number three, firm education. Once more, we're seeing a parent that gave unconditional love to their kids and was willing to sacrifice almost everything for them, but at the same time had very high expectations and clear boundaries. Number four, be of service for your kids, even if it means driving two hours a day so your kids can practice with the best. Number five, teachable moments. Use every opportunity as a learning opportunity. Reflect, learn, and get better. Just like Debbie did with Michael after the goggles incident in the pool. 
And number six, appreciate the moment. Don't run, or in Debbie's case, literally run from one race to another. When good things happen, when you have wins, stop, appreciate, and be grateful. Thank you all for listening. For show notes, please visit RaisingToRise.com. Your support is greatly appreciated, and I'm looking forward to continuing the parenting journey together. It was hard to say goodbye to Debbie, and it's hard to end this conversation. And so before we go, we thought to add a little bonus, apart from the conversation that was not directly related to parenting, but it was definitely very inspiring. In reference to Debbie Phelps, the empty nester, how about that? When your children leave your home, it's really hard. I feel personally, some people like it and they change the bedrooms over to whatever they do. And I loved having my children around and I'm not fortunate to have them around all the time. But in my job, which I am still working for Baltimore County Public Schools, and I was moved from my schoolhouse in 2012 to a position that's executive director of the foundation. And we're 501c3. I started looking at myself in decades when I was in 20, then I was 30, then I was 40, then I was 50, then I was 16, I'm gonna be soon be 70, kind of crazy, as to what I need to do before I leave this earth. I feel that I've raised three successful children who are very happy and content in their life, and that's what we want as parents. But now in my position that I have here, I impact 115,000 students and nearly 10,000 teachers. So I think, you were put on this world to serve. And people say, why don't, you, why don't you retire and travel? And I say, well, you know, I've traveled the last 20 years with Michael internationally, and I'm not, I don't need to travel anymore. So we have this wonderful initiative called the Exchange Tree, which is a national dilemma that our teachers don't have enough resources for their classrooms. And I wanted to handle that situation. And I wanted to make sure through our work as a foundation with an amazing executive committee and board and, and headquarters staff that we're able to service our teachers to service our children. So I think my mom would be very happy and proud of me as I walk into this location every day. But to tell the story of the next generation of children, education is very important. People don't want to go into education anymore. It's becoming a dying dinosaur which breaks my heart because what's going to happen to our children? They all can't be in front of computer screens all their lives. So my years of service here at the exchangery is to be able to give back, to be able to tell compelling stories to our community partners, to get them to buy into the importance of education, public education, and that everyone deserves the same education, no matter what zip code they live in. So I embrace this with open arms and I really think we're making a difference as we've serviced 2,000 of 10,000 teachers thus far. And as we sit here together today and we, I look to my left and right and around us, everything in this 2,000 square foot center has been donated by the community. Why? Because they care. People need to care. And we can get them on board if we talk to people and put our phones down and go face to face and be able to share what's next in kids' lives. So that's where I am now. And I'm very proud to be able to serve. 
And I guess when my service is done, then I'll sit back by the beach or someplace <laughs> else and enjoy myself. But right now there's work to be done, not only with my children and grandchildren, but the next generation of children. That's very inspiring. Thank you for sharing.